Broadcasting live. Weekday morning, this is listener-supported One Radio Network. Well, very pleasant good morning to you. Hi there, this is Patrick Timpone, and it's a Wednesday morning, our favorite day. The farmer's market is at 3 o'clock this afternoon, and Doodle, my girl here, Golden Doodle, she gets all excited. We get to go, and she's like the head of the farmer's market. Every Everybody likes to pet her, and she'll just sit there until they quit petting her. We'll be there this afternoon at 3 if you want to visit us in Dripping Springs. We get to meet a lot of folks. I love Wednesdays. It's just fun talking to, to real uh, farmers. And there was actually a regenerative farmer person who has pigs. And he uh, lives and, and uh, works on Willie Nelson's farm. And uh, they feed their pigs uh, all kinds of vegetarian kind of things. Pretty cool stuff. Anyway, uh I'm just, you know, babbling here. Don't mind me. Our phone line is still uh, not working, but they assure me tomorrow is the day. We'll see. We had two inches of global warming in the form of ice on our lines, and the 800 line just fell down in one boom a few weeks ago. So what are you going to do? So if you want to participate with our guest this morning, who you meet now, he's in the green room, but looking not green, Daniel Vitalis is Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Here's a fellow, Daniel Vitalis, that I've known for a long time. I remember I first met him years ago when he was doing a, a vegan vegetarian thing with David Wolf, I mean, forever ago. And then we got involved with Daniel because he has a great company, as you know, Survival. We talk a lot about Survival, always great products. And um, fitness thing that I want to talk about, he, he's really into some interesting ways to stay fit. And then he's, he's the CEO, well, of Survival. But he's a producer and star, and he's a, he's a, he's a TV star on, that's right, Wild Fed, uh, finishing up in their third season right now on the Outdoor Channel. And... Yeah, they just got greenlit for a fourth year. So he's he's a big TV star, so I'm glad he was able to come on. <laughs> Good morning, Mr. Vitalis. So great to see you. You look great. Boy, you look great. Thank you. I'm like, I'm basically like one of the Kardashians, huh? like big TV star. Huge. That's right. That's right. So when you get when you get greenlit, do you like uh, you know, do you like text uh, Tom Cruise and everything and say I'm in time? Yeah, yeah, we we explode bottles of champagne around the room, all I think, of that. I think you should. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing? You're up in Maine, right? You're up in Maine. I'm up in Maine. It's great to see you, man. I think I've probably been coming on your show now for about 15 years. 15 I'd years. Say. I started Search Rival in 2008, so that's 15 years. Maybe even a little earlier than that that I first came on, but uh, it's been a long time, and you look fantastic. Oh, thank you. I feel good, and you look as well. And you, in the since I've seen you, you've gotten married. You're a married fellow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. We yeah. Met so you. we've been together eight years uh, next month, and, and um, we are... Been married now. Uh, this will be our fifth an wedding anniversary coming up this uh, summer. We, I met your wife on your taboo commercial that we play. The oh, video. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> that's why I first really actually knew you were married. Yeah, yeah. So we. Uh, she's a, a Canadian woman from Montreal originally. Ivani. Uh -huh. Yeah, she's a fantastic human being. I'm. I'm really lucky. Well, Very lucky. You know, Everyone's always reminding me. How, how lucky, lucky you are. Yeah. And how did you? How did you two meet? <laughs> 
We actually met 15 years ago at my, get this, Patrick, she met me at the very first lecture. I mean, you met me as a public speaker. My very first talk that I ever gave was in Montreal and uh, she had been a professional whitewater kayaker. She had just finished her career competitively and she was taking a yoga teacher training and I, my friend owned the studio, asked me to come in and give a talk. So I came in for two days and I met her there and, and we you know, we had a really strong connection, but to be honest, at that time of my life, I just thought she was like the purest soul. And I, I didn't feel really like up to her level, if you will. And then years went by, we bumped into each other a few times, but it wasn't until, yeah, eight years ago, we met again at a party through some pretty magical circumstances and uh, we've been inseparable since yeah. then. Yeah. Well, I, I think that love at first sight thing, there's something to it. I believe that I'm kind of of the feeling that our state of consciousness is what is how we look, right? And then when we mm-hmm. see somebody, there's yeah, we we see, we know them, don't we? In a way, we we just that's a cool idea. Don't yeah, you, you just kind of know them, right? Yeah, yeah. At this point in my life, I can't. I mean, the mm-hmm. resonance between us is so powerful. It's like hard for me to put in words, but I'm a much better person. Yeah. through this relationship, I have to say it's it's changed me in extremely positive ways. How so? What are some ways? Well, I think I'm a, uh, it's kind of like, a, well, you know, I hunt, right? So it's kind of like a, a bullet coming out of a barrel. It's like, uh, if you just tried to fire the round without a barrel, it just goes nowhere. It has the, the there's all the energies there, but it's not channeled properly. Mm-hmm. And I think that was me. I was just like exploding energy all the time. <laughs> and she's like the focus that can help me to direct that energy in a way that's constructive because half the time you know energy just random energy it's like half the time it's constructive half the time it's destructive right and yeah. I, that was me kind of a mixed bag and uh, now i've got a lot of things sorted out as a result so yeah. yeah much more emotionally healthy and psychologically healthy person well there's a lot of ancient texts that you know that i've looked at and i really believe that if you're blessed enough to find the significant significant other like you have it's uh um very magical and some one and one can equal 12 i i you know i really yeah. i really believe yeah. that you know of course yeah. i'm a hopeful romantic and still haven't hooked up but i'm just a young kid so you know it's got lots yeah, of time. exactly you got so much time got a lot of time i am having a midlife crisis but other than that we're fine <laughs> <laughs> it's funny i've always thought of 144 you know, it's a good age, you know? I don't know why. Yeah. I actually even have some, some usernames, Patrick144. And now I'm halfway there. Oh, I love that. I'm halfway there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Midlife crisis. Well, yeah. I've been hearing um, the, the guy, Dr. Peter Atia. Um, I, I don't know him. He'd be, he's an amazing guy, but uh, so he's just, his book came out today, actually, but he um, he's got a podcast called The Drive. Anyway, he's he's a longevity guy. Okay, he always talks about he's preparing for the Centurion Decathlon. <laughs> I think that's a cool idea. You know, like yeah. how do you reverse engineer your life now for when you know for when you're a hundred doing the decathlon? You bet, baby. How do you spell his last name? I'll check him out. A T T I A. A T T I A. Yeah, Peter Atia, longevity dude. Mm-hmm. I think it's funny, you know, I, you see a lot of longevity people on YouTube and places and, you know, they're 30 years old, you know, so I'm, it's, it's great. But you know, I mean, it's funny to me because I was doing that, uh, you know, I got my start in that longevity now conference. Oh, world, that's right. You know? Yeah. You did. And, and what a funny concept. Longevity now is also like a very funny, ironic thing to say. But, but I came up in that world and, you know, looking back, it's like in your 20s and 30s, what, what do you know? Right? know? But also like. <laughs> 
you also your body can handle so many insults and bounce back so quickly obviously you have to get finer tuned yeah. as time goes on so yeah yeah it's amusing uh our uh trademark is it takes a long time to get young and we we're, we have we have a, a screenplay and then writing a book too but the more i i think about it daniel i don't i don't look at it as getting younger I, I really see clearly how every moment of my life with what I believe and think, I'm creating this body, right? Mm-hmm. With what I believe to be true. So it's almost like we're creating a new body all the time. And what yeah. it looks like when we're 90 or who cares? It's going to look like whatever we think, right? It's going to look like. We don't want to look like we're 30. I don't. it's an interesting moment i've talked about this over the years a lot but you know this concept of neoteny which is the carrying of a of childhood traits yeah neo neoteny so the carrying of childhood traits into adulthood is one of the key marks of domestication and so where you know you get a puppy which is a which is really an immature wolf um and it's got all these traits like if you took a baby wolf it looks like a puppy floppy ears curly tail yeah. kind of goofy play that it does but then as it ad- it becomes an adult it stops looking like that and becomes a mature wolf what happens with domestication is our dogs grow up and they still have a curly tail and they still have floppy ears so domesticated animals tend to resemble the infant form, even as adults, it's one of the things that happens when you get domesticated. So with modern humans, we're kind of like that because we're a domesticated ape, essentially. <laughs> and so it, it's fascinating because we are obsessed with the look of youth. Yes. I saw, you know, I saw a great meme the other day because uh, Madonna had recently been doing the the, the circuit and everybody kind of saw that plastic surgery she yeah. had, which was like, oof, you know, it's sad to me because we don't have much we don't give much um credence now to elders really you Mm -hmm. know i mean and so we don't look at the faces and the skin and the bodies of elders with reverence the way we once did so now you've got these who this woman should be an elder she was essentially a leader to generation of women but instead Instead of being an elder, she's trying to, to force plump to be, herself to be young. with yeah. chemicals into looking like a, it's, it's trying to create neoteny, trying to hyper domesticate. Anyway, I saw this great meme the other day. It was a side by side of her and Roseanne Barr. And it said, if you had told me 20 years ago, Roseanne Barr would look better in 20 years than Madonna, I'd have laughed at it. But side by side, I mean, Roseanne Barr, who's never been somebody we've looked at as a sex icon or attractive yeah. even really. Yeah. Uh, and here she is looking much more beautiful than Madonna in her current form, which is, you know, not a criticism of aging. It's a criticism of that resistance to the process of maturing. You know, it's yes. just kind of sad to me. I mean, to, yeah. to go to those Darth Vader level lengths of plastic surgery to try to create because it, it doesn't work. So I don't quite understand what people are trying to do there. I have a thing in one of my screenplays is the idea that if we look in the mirror and don't like the way we look, then that means we don't like who we are. And that's yeah. not good. You know, if we don't like who we are internally, well then, you know, we need to do something different and change our sure. way. But of course, this is the change the mirror culture, right? right. This is like, yeah. how do I change the mirror instead of change myself? Change and that's myself. like one of the, fu- I think that, that's like the fundamental flaw in the thinking of our current Western kind of culture that we we live in. Which would be trying to change the, um, uh, 
trying to change the outside or maybe trying to heal something from the outside with drugs or something rather than look going inside yeah. and saying, okay, this is, yeah. this is the cause. This is how we, how we created this yeah. thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also deal. I think, I think something that, um, is getting more and more ingrained into, uh, I guess this big collective umbrella of health culture that we're a part of, you know, we exist in some sphere, some part of this big umbrella of health stuff, um, is really like dealing with trauma and, internally i think what's going on is is people today are people have always carried a lot of trauma obviously i mean you look at human history it's but there's some unique stuff going on right now with um the lack of community that we live in today so you know we have all of this trauma and it keeps us from wanting to go in because what's in there is often like pretty murky painful stuff so people are avoiding going inward understandably it's hard work but i think sometimes people don't want to go change what's inside because what's inside is too scary for them to deal with, or they don't have the kind of support system in place to know how to even go there. Yes. But, um, you know, therapy, meditation, all those kind of things, communication, all those things are so important so that you can start to go inward so you can find what's there so you can eventually learn to love yourself again more fully. Really important, huh, boy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, we've done quite a few shows on uh, German New Medicine, you probably have heard of that. And Hi, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, and it's all about traumas. Yeah. So okay. they go in, there was a fellow, a Dr. Hammer, who, his son was shot in a, in a weird gun accident, and he got testicular cancer a long, short time after that, and he began to make the connection between the trauma of his mm-hmm. son and the testicular cancer and he tied that into reproduction and the sun and all that. So he spent his whole lifetime, and he would study brain scans and actually see how when people um, brought up that trauma when they were a kid or 20 years old, and then they saw it, and then they were able to release it, the actual brains changed. Changed. Yeah, it was just, wow. yeah, man. Yeah, I, I consider myself a survivor of the diet wars of the, <laughs> you know, the 2000s and the 2010s, and. And the idea that we were going to eat or hack ourselves into some kind of, you know, I mean, biohack, like ourselves into some kind of like perfected being or some kind of immortalized being by just what we eat, which to me now where I'm sitting now looks really, that's a kind of a silly idea. It's pretty hilarious, isn't it? What we thought. Yeah. Because also it's like, yeah, I mean, the idea that you're not going to deal with those kind of psychological underpinnings and foundations, you're just going to eat food that's going to somehow... I, one of the things I eventually realized is I started thinking about people who lived on this continent before Europeans got here. And I was thinking about their diets. And if you look at their diets, you step back, you're like, man, these are like essentially perfect diets that were happening in a lot of places in North America. But the people didn't just live forever or have these crazy, unusual, you know, health outcomes. They're pretty normal people. Uh, why is that? Why weren't they perfected beings? Like, how, and then I realized, like, no matter how good I eat here in polluted North America today, I'm never going to have a diet as good as that. So that even if I tried to do all the things, I'm still not going to get better, a better health outcome <laughs> than those folks did. So it, eventually, it's like, wait, there's a lot more to this than food. It's a, it's a small part. Yes, sir. What, what's your opinion if you, if you want to share one with this whole carnivore movement and We've talked to folks like Chafee and you know all of the big carnivore dudes around the world, all of them, and they're really hardcore and kind of dogmatic about it. And I was that way 
you know, about a year ago when I started. But then I, you know, after a while, after a few months, I began to think, man, this is like a religion. Maybe I don't want to do this, you know. I don't want to join this club, as Woody Allen said. If somebody lets me into my club, I don't want to join. If they'll let me in, I don't know if I want to join. <laughs> yeah, what's the criteria here? <laughs> what's the criteria? Yeah, but it is interesting. The carnivore thing is really pretty big now in the keto, as yeah, you know. it's huge. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. I, t- I told this story about um, just before, because in Maine now we have uh, like legal recreational cannabis, but um, there's still obviously a lot of people in jail from when it wasn't recreationally legal. And I knew a guy who went to jail and, and when he got out, he'd been in like five years in federal prison for cannabis. Crazy. But oh. he got out and he said, Hey man, like what's changed? And I go, Oh, bacon's a health food now. <laughs> you know, like, health si- since he went in you know what i mean like he went in and, and vegetarianism and veganism was how you were healthy uh-huh. he gets out and all of a sudden no now it's bacon like i mean how extreme are these two ends of the spectrum so yeah thanks for asking my opinion on this i mean i i would love to address it because yeah because the last <clears throat> seven eight years of my life have been about regressing diet and going into nature and harvesting wild food. So it's been your whole life. That's what my TV show is about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, as you know, this has been a theme throughout my work for 15 years, but, but I started actually hunting and gathering. So the question was like, what's a modern hunter gatherer look like who still lives in a house and it has a job and pays taxes. Like what, what would it look like not to be a hunter gatherer on the Savannah in Africa or, you know, in the jungle in the Amazon, but right here, I live in New England, you know, how, how's that look? Uh So, you know, my freezers are full of game meats and fish and my, you know, my pantry fills up with plants throughout the year. And I, I've actually gone out and done a significant amount, not a hundred percent of my diet or anything like that, but a significant, much more significant than, than most people ever would get to do. When you do that, your ideas about diet start to change a lot. Yeah. Cause you start to realize like, wait, how could these diets, any of these diet fads be founded in any kind of biological history when they're not possible in nature? You go out there and you you can't really live like that, whether it's vegan or carnivore. And when you look at the anthropology, you go like, wait a second, neither of these diets are representative of any peoples that we know about ever. So that makes them new diets. And that's okay. We should try new things. But What's weird to me is when we get a new thing and then we start to tell people they have to do it. It's the only way, the right way. And it's right. like, and you, it's like somebody who's just gone into the stock market and they try one stock and they start ha- having success and they tell everybody in the world, you all need to do this. It's like, well, <laughs> if we all do that. It won't work. Like you, you just play out your experiment, you know, like, so if somebody wants to be vegan or carnivore and to me, they're opposites. There really, there's a lot of similarity there in in the approach, and I think that it's a natural outcome. One's the natural outcome of the other. So if you if you've got 20 years of pushing vegetarianism and veganism really hard, what what's the backlash going to be? A swing to the other side, and now you have a diet where it's just gone from meat is toxic and you should only eat plants to plants are toxic, toxic yeah. and you should only eat meat. When we look at humans all through human history, what we see is they're omnivores. So it's like this not sexy diet approach to push. It's like the omnivore diet does not sound 
like veganism, there's something elite and edgy about the sound of it. It's like, oh, that sounds like the most hardcore. And the carnivore diet sounds really? badass. Oh man, I'm... oh that's cool, right? <laughs> but like the carnivore diet sounds milk toast. It's like, who's into that? That sounds boring. But that's the reality. We we eat we need meat for protein uh-huh. and fats and we eat plants for fats and carbohydrates and a lot of our micronutrients that we need but we also eat plants for medicine and so you know and i've had the opportunity to talk with like paul saladino several times Have i you? really like him i think he's a brilliant guy I, I really appreciate what he does but i do think that he's a big part of a fad diet that will eventually what will happen is it filtering out of that will be the the principles in it that were right, but we'll throw most of it away because we aren't anatomical carnivores. We're we're just not. We we are. I mean, we have flat, <laughs> spade-like teeth in the back. We we've been eating plants forever. Now, one of the things is that in our um, in our fossil and archaeological record, uh-huh. plants don't preserve well. So, one of the things there's a tremendous bias in the literature towards finding spear points, axe heads, stone tools. And many of those stone tools were for hunting. But we forget that like you can't, if you've got an arrow head, that was hafted onto a piece of wood and shot with a piece of wood. So that's plant technology. Unfortunately, our nets and our wooden implements and our baskets for foraging and our digging sticks, they don't preserve well in the archaeological record. So it leaves a lot of people with this idea of man, the great hunter, and we are great hunters. I mean, Mm. to the point of being able to cause extinctions, we're incredible hunters. But we're also, some part of me feels like um, there's almost a masculine bias too, because it's, it's women largely historically who gathered, who did the fiber arts we don't know how old fiber arts are but one of the primitive skills you learn if you start to immerse yourself in that world is how to use plant fiber to make cord and then eventually to weave and eventually to sew and these are are things that women carried through like matrilineally where where men carried patrilineally the hunting technologies right so women are doing all these things but their art wasn't preserved in the archaeological record well so we kind of forget it and we just go like look we were hunters our knowledge of plants was incredible and the idea that we weren't using any of them for food was like that's, you're, so you're talking it's, maybe ten thousand years ago or, or twenty thousand longer no no no, longer, no yeah well, i'd back. say longer so i we're so we start to differentiate into modern humans 300,000 years ago is the current this stuff keeps going back and back when I started talking about these things it was 200,000 years ago so to give you a sense like that's one of the awkward things about science is like whenever you you're just using current facts but it goes pretty far back but hominin evolution goes back three and a half million years so we know three and a half million years ago we were quite simian still quite you know ape-like and we were like australopithecus at this time we're, we're eating plants and we're starting to scavenge bones, crack them open with rocks. We're starting to butcher. St- we're eating meat at that point too, mm-hmm. but we're doing both. And then all through history, we're doing both. And so I think these diets are, they're fads, man. We, we keep, Damn. you know, something I've said to you years ago is like, you go into the supermarket and you look around at what's in there and it looks like a lot of foods, but really it's just a handful of domesticated animals and plants. A very small suite of species that are in there 
And what we do is we keep rearranging them into different configurations, you know? So it'll be like, we'll take this, this, and this food, and we'll be like, this is a new diet. And then that gets boring after a year or two. And then we go like, no, you, those are all bad. These are all the good ones. And it's literally the same handful of foods. The average American eats about 30 species a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the average hunter-gatherer is closer to 1,000, 2,000 species in some places a year. So the idea that any diet would be the right diet that's based on these 30 foods is kind of crazy. And I want to kind of finish that up with this thing I've been thinking about all week, actually. This has been like really amusing (laughs) me. I started thinking about how every food that humans eat in our current like context of, you know, living, let's say in the United States, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a food you could name that I couldn't find a diet that tells you you shouldn't eat that food. Because think about it, it's like, Every vegetable, it's like, well, what about tomatoes? It's like, oh, that's a nightshade, right? It's like, oh, you shouldn't have that. It's a nightshade. The nightshades are out. Well, what about brown rice? It's like, oh, no, that's a grain. Grains are no, out. Arsenic. Then you're like, what arsenic about meat? Arsenic and brown rice. Right. Arsenic and brown rice. Arsenic and brown rice. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. There you go. You <laughs> can't have it. Or, or the people who are like, no grains, you know? So you're like, okay, there's no grains. Okay, no nightshades. Well, that's tomatoes. That's potatoes. That's tomatillos. You know, you got people like no alliums. You're like, oh my God, okay, that's all the onions and garlic. Okay, we get rid of that. Like you start going through the list, no meats, because the vegans say that's all bad for you, right? You don't want any protein. And you also have this on the macronutrient level too, because you have the, you got the vegans telling you protein's a poison. You've got the carnivores telling you that carbohydrates are a poison. And you've got the anti-lipid people telling you fats are the poison. So you're like, what? That's all the things. The only other nutrient you can get calories from is alcohol. And there's plenty of people telling you not to have that. So it's like, that's all the things. What should we eat then? Hmm. Right? It's it's somebody's wrong here. <laughs> I think they're kind of all wrong, you know? I, I don't know. You probably have seen, and we actually interviewed Sally K. Norton a couple of times, because I got on this oxalate thing too. Oh yeah, which is what we That's got started on the whole on the whole carnivore thing ten minutes ago. Be careful down that road. I was I was That's up at all the plants, dude. I was I know I was up at three o'clock in the morning, and somebody in Japan sent me this interview with Sally K. Norton, and I watched it. You know how it'll happen when three o'clock in the morning, and I go, oh my god, I'm almonds and and uh, kale and all these things I'm eating are full of oxalates, and so. I'm not going to eat any oxalates. I'm just going to not eat them, and I'll see if there's something to this. And I figured out real quickly the only thing that was left was meat and eggs and you know whatever. So I yeah. turned into a carnivore dude. But I mean, and then now they're arguing that these plants not only have oxalates, but they have all these poisons because that's what keep people from eating them. Do you, I mean, what's up with that? Do Can you, I address that? Yeah, address I, that's that? why I'm asking you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let me go back. To Sally first, who I also interviewed, and um, oh, I had a great did. time talking to her. She's Again, great. Awesome person. Yeah. Um, great person. Um, believes what she's talking about wholeheartedly. Now, I said to her, listen, as a forager, many of the foods you're telling me are too high in oxalate are foundational foods in human diets all over the world. I mean, people are eating, hunter-gatherers have been eating oxalates all along, and they've been extr- so healthy that we're here today. So what's changed? And she said, well, there might have been gut bacteria. There's some evidence actually for gut bacteria that could break down those oxalates. And maybe we don't have that anymore. And so it's like, well, to me, why not work on getting that bacteria into our gut lumen 
rather than just cutting out all of these foods. I, I don't think that approach makes sense. She mm. really freaked me out, though. I mean, my morning smoothie was essentially all the foods she says you shouldn't have, you know? And and we got into this <laughs> interesting conversation because, again, as a forager, I can call BS on a lot of things that a lot of people wouldn't know because they, they people like to talk about what humans in nature would do. Mm -hmm. So she was doing that. Um, again, I say I try to say this respectfully because sure, I think understand. she's fantastic and her information is important. But, um, and I do like the idea of having better tables for us to understand wh how, what the oxalate load in foods is. I think that would be useful to know, just like it's useful to know how much proteins in food. But she was saying like, well, maybe with foragers though, it's like you know you're going to come upon a raspberry bush and eat a few, but you're not going to you know, gather like tons of them and eat them all. And I was like, no, no, you, yeah, you do that though. That's what we do. And like, in fact, you, you gather enough for the whole winter. That's like what humans always have done. We always have done that for all of our history. That's what we do. She just kind of flatly dismissed that. Like, oh no, people just would only eat what they walked by. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's like saying if you killed an animal, you'd just take a bite and then you'd walk off and leave it. No, 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 <laughs> no. You figure out how to make baskets to bring all that back. And then you figure out how to dry and preserve yeah. and ferment so that you can store these things and eat them long-term. So yeah. I, I just, for me, the idea that these foods that have been in our diet, essentially going back thousands and tens of thousands of years are suddenly this health culprit. I'm not buying it. I, and again, only because we could, that's just one component. Like if we start to put all those diets together, there's literally no foods left that are okay to eat. Hmm. That just can't be right. You know? And so for me, one of the biggest things that I've learned making my TV show, Wild Fed, and, and being out in nature to gather both plants, animals, fungi, even algaes, which are another kingdom of life. What's most interesting to me and most absent in the conversations around diet is not what we eat. I really wish if I could like leave a legacy, it would be like, who do we eat? It's such a fundamental shift in consciousness. Not what, who. I don't ask you like, what, what family members do you hang out with? It's like, who in your family do you hang out with? These are people with personalities, life histories, st a whole story behind them. When you eat anything, like uh, let's say that you had a blueberry, <clears throat> it's like blueberry is a species that's been on the earth living as like, you know, like the, the native perspective in North America has often given personhood to a lot of species. So it's like, who is blueberry? What's its life history? What's its natural history? What are the conditions it likes? Who does it like to live around? In other words, what are the other key indicator species that it lives amongst in community in the ecosystem it's part of? And can we stop approaching blueberry as just a food and start a approaching it with appreciation for the fact that it's a living species who's fought its way all the way to the modern era and is still here with us in the Anthropocene. It's a being. And I think <laughs> it'd be really useful for people to start to develop yeah. relationships with the foods they eat, not just consider them these like um, inanimate things that they consume. Yeah. It's a great, uh, great idea to think about something like a blueberry that's made it for, I don't know what, a million years or whatever. And how, Probably a lot how could it possibly that, yeah. be bad for you? I mean, how could that possibly? Yeah, but also, like, what have we ever What's seen it? Like, have we ever, have you really ever seen it outside? I you know, like, I think have. about um, yeah. think about how many people have. I I like to use this example of how many people have eaten lettuce their whole life but never seen a mature lettuce plant. 
because what they're eating is the baby lettuce in its infant form. It's like essentially like a sprout. Hmm. They're eating these really young floret of leaves. Later in the plant's life cycle, it puts up a thick central stalk. It flowers at the top, big yellow flowers that look almost like little dandelions. You know, people would not recognize that as a lettuce at all because even though they eat lettuces, they don't know it. So it's kind of like, imagine, it's almost like if you had a pen pal your whole life, you had all these intimate conversations with this person and you never even thought about, you never even had an interest in meeting them. Wouldn't that be weird? Because it's like <laughs> you make your own body tissue. So parts of your liver and parts mm. of your bones and parts of your kidneys and parts of your skin and brain are made of the lettuce you've been eating, but not knowing the thing. That's how we've been living. So we've been doing the most intimate act of building ourselves out of these creatures because mm. all these foods we eat are creatures or parts of creatures, yet we live outside of relationship with them. And I think what that's unfortunate because we we recognize pretty clearly that there's a real problem with the habitat on planet Earth. Like we have been extremely irreverent with how we treat our ecosystems. You know, I don't like to go down this climate change road, but right. but I definitely don't mind going down this habitat change road. We're losing habitat very fast and we're losing species very fast. And part of the thing is that we talk about how we talk about how we shouldn't do that, yet we don't really put any we don't invest any energy into getting out into these ecosystems and meeting the creatures that live there, even though we eat them. So, I think as long as we keep on that path, we're kind of destined to continue losing habitat and losing species and that's the community of life that we are embedded in so we talk about like how bad humans need community it's like we need community with each other but we also need community with the wild world the natural world and we we essentially can have that through our diets if we know that what we eat are creatures but if we don't think about it like that people literally don't realize what food is it's creatures so so we're actually saying, and which I believe, that they're spiritual beings, right? They're souls just like we are. They living, they know something, and they survive. And I don't know. I don't think they know yeah, that they if know. That's, but if that's a thing, then yeah, because <laughs> they they're they have DNA like us. And you know, on many of these species, what's interesting too is they've been here so much longer than us. Like right. plants pre-exist, not just animals. They pre-exist, especially hominins like us, like these type of apes we are. I mean, we're we're relatively. You know, it's kind of a cliche to say it in anthropology, but we're a newcomer on the biological scene. You know, we've just kind of got here, but there's a lot of creatures that are food for us that have been here much, much longer. Um, so for me, it's been really interesting in these last years to meet the things that I eat. Wow. And you're out in the woods all the time, dude. You are out there all the time doing your show. Yeah, we're there. out at sea too, you know, which is another sea. really powerful experience too. You know, I um, this year I got to go, you know, I never thought about this, Patrick, but something that I'm sure you're pretty familiar with the Graham Hancock kind of uh, I am. line of thinking, right? I am. So something that's interesting to me is that when I think about archaeology, there's definitely something, I don't know what the answer is, but there's something incomplete about our picture of all this stuff, you right? Think? Like, okay. there's a missing saga somewhere. I'm with you. You know, right. that led to the Sphinx or whatever. Right. So, when we try to find the evidence, the problem is we've just come through an ice age. And when the, it's, the water now is rising because the ice caps are melting pretty, pretty rapidly too. And this 
obviously pre-exists the industrial revolution. So I'm not, again, I'm not talking about okay. human-induced climate change, right, this whole right. other issue, but I'm just talking about we've come out of an ice age. So when all that ice, I mean, where I live now was under two miles of ice. You know, New York City was under two miles of ice. I mean, this is, this stuff, this ice sheet extended at times all the way down to almost to Arizona. How long ago We're was talking. that for reference? Oh, so the last... Glacial maximum probably oh I, I want to say like twenty to fourteen thousand years ago. Okay. Somewhere somewhere in that time frame. Mm -hmm. This ice starts receding back like twenty thousand years ago, fourteen thousand years ago, something like that. So when that happens, the sea starts to rise rapidly. Okay, if we were to just look at a map of the earth today and be like, where do all the people live? It's like they all live right around the sea. That's where most of the population density is. Our big cities, New York, LA, like on the sea. So, and I'm talking like right up to the beach. Mm -hmm. So if humans like to live by the sea and all of that ice is now water, that's liquid water, and it's brought the sea level up, that means probably most of the, the best archaeological sites are underwater. And I'm not just talking about like lost cities. I'm talking about like just bones. Like if we want to find like, what were we eating? How long have we been here? When did we first get to North America? All that stuff's underwater. So we're having to look for archaeological evidence on the surface in places that were much more scantily populated. All the population centers are underwater, deep, deep, deep. So anyway, my point is, uh, this year I got to go out sword fishing. Um, swordfish fishing? Swordfish. And I went out of Maryland, and we went out... Um, into some very deep water. So we went out over the continental shelf where it drops off to what's called the abyssal plain. So if you get in a boat right now from like, let's say here in Maine, and I start driving, you know, west, so, uh, or sorry, east, I mean, so I start going out to sea, the the water gets deeper because the but the land just gradually drops off i can go 30 40 miles out and i'm in 300 feet of water but eventually you get to a place where the the actual continent just drops off really? precipitously it's, like it's a 6, feet bank that's the edge of the continent itself so if you picture like you know here's the here's the land mass and the water is like this you know, it's gradual, 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 and then eventually it just drops off. So we got out to where we were out over 500 feet of water, and then all of a sudden we're over 6,000 feet. And we, Whoa. that's the edge of the continent, right? So the quest for wild food has taken me into places that I would like never otherwise get to go. You know, we were 100 miles out. I would never get to go there and fish down in there. I mean, we're catching swordfish down in that deep, 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 deep water and bringing them up. But it left me thinking like, this is fascinating stuff. The earth has changed so much that for us to try to piece together a picture of what has actually happened here, it's almost impossible. We would need such sophisticated diving and excavating ability to find the really crucial archaeological sites that kind of hold the secrets to our actual past if that makes sense because mm -hmm. mostly underwater you know imagine what's in beringia like that space between siberia and alaska that's was that great map they call it a land bridge but it wasn't like it's not like a little bridge it was a continent a that continent. was exposed yeah that's now underwater and all the humans who moved into north america came across that so for sure that thing's littered littered with incredible archaeological sites that we'll probably never find so even if uh uh, we don't really see a sea rise like in New York, and I've seen pictures of 
the Statue of Liberty a hundred years ago, and it's exactly the same, or the the oceans in California. Right. All of the the, the sea rise you're talking about has taken a long time ago and up until now. It's not like it's yeah, happened in the so last the hundred last, years or something like that. No, no, it's okay. been over the last like 15,000 years. 15,000 years. Up. Ah. Yeah, because, because there's a, you know, we do, we get some water that comes in from space. That does happen. Hmm. And we get some water that's actually manufactured in organisms through the life process. So that happens too. But by and large, most of the water that's on earth is going to, Re- relatively going to stay the same amount. So if you have huge two mile high ice caps, that's water that's in the ocean right now that was locked up in ice. And that means lots more land. But, you know, we've been, the thing is, is that most of recorded human histories happened in a really stable, you know, a, a little window of stability. That may be why we have this kind of la- lost part of our history (laughs) because the earth does go through some pretty unstable periods we just have lived through a really stable period and you know the thing is is when you hear these things like oh record-breaking temperatures it's like well how far back do the records go you know 100 years 70 years 100 years i mean (laughs) how valuable is that you know it's important to know but it's like we don't know what it was like 500 600 700 years ago for um, ambient temperatures i mean we have some ability to deduce a little of that but not much so yeah, the Earth has changed a lot, but we've been in this stable stable period, and that that's allowed us to make a bunch of assumptions. About We're live here with Daniel Vitalis. He is the head cook and bottle washer there at uh, Sir Thrival. When his wife doesn't tell him exactly what to do, and he probably listens if he's smart, <laughs> and and uh, that we've talked about his products forever. We're going to talk about some of his new products here, and uh, phone lines are not happening because of the ice thing that we had. But if you'd like to ask a question or a comment, Patrick at oneradionetwork.com. Here's a good one from Heather. Thanks for having Daniel on. Does he think that long ago we had to cook these greens and vegetables to make them digestible? That's a good question. I, I um, A lot of people contend yeah. that you really have to cook vegetables, greens, to make them digestible. Is that close to being well, accurate? That's a really awesome question. Yeah. yeah. One, one thing that people should remember Again, when we talk about vegetables today, we're very rarely talking about wild vegetables. Uh, yeah. Right? We're talking so about spinach and, and we're broccoli. We're talking about domesticated and, yeah. vegetables. Right. Through the domestication process. Oh, and I was going to address the toxins too, so I'll, I'll tie sure. all that in here. Okay. Okay, so plants in nature produce toxins that keep them from being consumed by herbivores in excess. Plants don't mind usually being consumed a little bit by herbivorous insects or herbivorous mammals or whatever it might be, reptiles. They don't mind being eaten a little, but they have metabolic defenses keep them from being completely consumed and wiped out. So they'll produce toxins. We call them sometimes called secondary metabolic compounds or Mm. secondary metabolites. That's one word for these poisons. But in herbalism, those poisons are called medicines. This has been, this is like a fundamentally missing piece of information in the modern mind. So herbalism is the art of using very small or metered doses of plant toxins in the same way that modern medicine uses pharmacology. So modern medicine uses chemical compounds that they call medicines or drugs to induce changes to treat symptoms. That's what herbalism does too, but it uses plant compounds. Those are the same compounds the plant makes to keep itself from being overeaten. Wild plants in particular do a lot of this. 
That's why wild plants tend to taste more bitter to us than the domesticated counterpart. So mm. if we were to eat wild lettuce, we would notice it was much more bitter than a domesticated lettuce. That's because it's going to produce more of those compounds because it has to defend itself in the wild. Whereas our domesticated lettuce has been bred to remove a lot of those things. And the trade that we made in the domestication is just like what we did with dogs and wolves. When we domesticated dogs from wolves, we said, hey, you don't need to be so aggressive anymore because we're going to protect you. You don't need such gnarly teeth and jaws anymore. We're going to feed you. You don't need all those instincts anymore because you're going to live with humans and you don't have to live in the wild. So the dog gives up a lot of its ag aggressive defenses. When you take a lettuce and you domesticate it, you tell the lettuce, hey, you don't need to produce as much of those bitter compounds because we're going to make sure all those insects stay off of you now. Oh. And so we end up with foods that don't have many toxins in them anymore. And that allows us to eat them raw. So there are plants in the wild you can eat raw, of course, and I'll address that in a second. Mm. But by and large, what allows a raw food diet to be possible today for people is the fact that we've domesticated the plants they're eating. Now, the confusion is when somebody goes, look, the natural diet would be to eat all these things raw. And you go like, no, you don't understand. None of those things existed 10,000 years ago. These are all new foods you've domesticated out of the wild that can be eaten raw. So hmm. in nature, these things usually need some form of cooking, not always often need some form of cooking to render them even into food, something we can eat. So some, an example might be, let's say there's a toxic compound in a plant like prunacin. That's in all of the pits of all the stone fruits. Like um, that smells like, it's the flavor of almond. Almond is a relative of peaches and plums and nectarines. If you ever break a peach pit apart, you're like, is that a little almond in there? Uh-huh. Why does that look like an almond? Because an almond is essentially in the same, it's in the same genus, prunus. They all produce these, but they produce a toxic chemical. Prunacin smells like amaretto, tastes like bitter almond, nice flavor, but it's a cyanide compound, but it's heat sensitive. So if we cook that, the heat denatures it, and now you can eat more of it. Another way we might do something is let's say there's something toxic in a food and we, we want to leach that out. So what we'll do is boil the plant throw the water away because the boiling draws that toxin out. We throw that water away. Now we can eat the plant. Hmm. Now, here's an exception. It's Right now, it's March 29th. So we're heading into the earliest spring foraging here in Maine. When the plants first come up through the soil, there's no insects yet. You down in Texas probably don't get to enjoy this pleasurable moment that we have because I could define main seasons by the insects. Like we'll we'll start with tick season, that's going to go into black flies, then it's going to go to mosquitoes, then deer flies, then horse flies. I mean, I could, I could live the year here through insects, but we have this nice window with no biting insects because the insects haven't emerged yet for the season. That means that when the plants first come up through the ground, they're going to put all their energy into growth. To produce those toxins that we've been talking about takes energy. So they're going to wait because there's no insects yet. Why do it? They're going to put all their energy into growth. Now, that means the forager can go harvest the young shoots, hmm. like the fiddleheads or the young leaves that come up before the insects start coming out. And those can often be eaten raw because they don't have all those poisons yet. But as soon as the insects start coming out, the plants stop putting all that energy into just growth and they start to produce all of these chemicals, which keep insects from being able to eat as much of them, but means we no longer get to eat those things raw anymore. They taste too bitter 
or they become too toxic. And now we have to find new ways to render them edible. But that's the point at which they start to become medicinal. So if you were an herbalist, you wouldn't want to go out first thing in the year and harvest the, the, I don't know, let's think the goldenrod right when it sprouts. It's not going to have had time to bioaccumulate all of its toxins because that's going to happen later in the year. So the plants become more medicinal as they produce more of these toxins, which are the medicinal compounds. So something you've heard me say over the years, Patrick, is mm. when we say let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food, this is only possible if the food has medicine. But medicine is synonymous with toxin. Any medicine in too great a quantity is a toxin. And most toxins in very small quantities have medicinal properties. So hmm. a famous example would be foxglove, that beautiful flower. Um, digitalis is its genus. It's extremely toxic to your heart. It'll kill you. But in very small quantities, it's used as a heart medication in herbalism. So it's dose dependent. And we could think of lots of things like this, like salt is very important to you. Yes. You need salt regularly. I mean, that's a critical electrolyte. But in too, too much of it will kill you. You'll literally dehydrate yourself to death. I mean, you, can, you could kill yourself with salt. It's dose dependent. Exercise is like that. Everything's like that. Everything's like that. So what makes something poisonous or medicinal has to do with how much of it. And to, to kind of wrap a bow on the question, <laughs> We cooked a lot of the foods that we ate, but when they could be eaten raw or were nice to eat raw, we did. So um, I got to um, make a great episode of Wild Fed this year in um, Wisconsin with the famous forager, Sam Thayer. This guy's like the leading forager in probably the world, but definitely in North America as far as being a public figure who writes about it. Outstanding person. Love this guy. He takes me out to forage this part of the cattail plant that I had never eaten. Cattails, that aquatic um, plant, they, they produce like four or five different vegetables um, throughout the year. But there was this one I'd never harvested. He takes me out in a canoe. We're in chest deep water and you have to dive down into the muck, that thick muck that like you go knee deep in. And you can find where the plant is growing these lateral shoots that it's going to eventually turn upward and become a new plant. So it's propagating itself, not just through seed, but also through these shoots that it produces. There's nothing down in that muck eating those shoots, really. Very little, maybe muskrats occasionally. But because those are down in that deep mud, when you pull them out, they're delicious raw. They're not putting energy into the chemicals in there because mm. there's not bugs down there eating it and animals aren't getting down there and eating it. So there's no need to. That allows me as the forager to eat it raw. And it's nice to. I wouldn't cook that unless I, I, I don't need to. It's fantastic. But many plants that we would harvest do need cooking. But certain things don't, particularly, let's say, fruits, berries, and things like that. Why would I want to, you know, berries are wonderful. I'll happily eat them raw and cooked. But, um, but then there's some things that you're almost always going to cook. So it just really depends. There's so many species of plants in the world. And if you think of like an Amazonian forager eating a couple thousand plants in a year, the you couldn't make a blanket statement like they all need to be cooked. It's just not. It's much more nuanced yeah. than that. Um, unfortunately, though, back to that initial point about oxalates, like that's something that's not destroyed by cooking. That's so not right. Certain no. So certain things you'd be like, well, I want to try to get rid of that through cooking. Might work, might not work. Depends on what the 
the baddie is that you're trying to get rid of, I guess. Yeah. I was just imagining while you were saying this, all the, the, the information and energy and vitamins, minerals, and whatever in these things that, that you're getting when you really go out and, and forage. Must be pretty. Well, they're alive though. Well, like you're eating an alive yeah, thing. Yeah, like, it's like whoa. Like that's what I was trying to say before. They're creatures. So yeah. just like I mean, because of what we eat, we're filled with nutrients. Something would love to eat us too. It's just we tend to get rid of anything that can, right? Right. But eventually we'll die. And imagine how many things are on you right now, ready to eat you when you die. I mean, there's a smell after a couple of days of a body being around because of all <laughs> the stuff that's waiting to eat it. Right. That's on there, just waiting for us to croak. You know. So, so I think like there's this thing going on. We live in an ecosystem. We forget it. We think like nature and then people. Mm. We think the built environment is separate from nature, but we forget the built environment is embedded in nature. So we kind of forget that we're part of this ecosystem. But what's really going on on earth is creatures eat other creatures. There's just no way around it. You know, the only, <laughs> it's funny when you read Genesis in the Bible, because it describes this time before death, before anything's eating anything and people are just plant eaters in that story and it's like that's a really beautiful idea but remember plants are alive too so people are eat still there there is death they're eating plants like when you eat plants unless you're only eating the fruits you're killing an organism i mean nobody's out there like throwing orange paint on people for eating carrots <laughs> can you imagine carrots you know, have like kids too right carrots have kids yeah too. the society for for you know Wow. protecting plants or whatever going out there like stopping you from eating salad because it's cruel it's like well we are eating living things and when you look at a cell what's different between a plant and an animal cell the type of wall that it has that's it i mean one has a cell wall and one has a cell membrane otherwise we're kind of the same so we we have a very speciest approach looking at things but what's happening on earth is everybody's eating each other everybody's eating somebody <laughs> Uh, somebody. As, as Dean Martin said, everybody loves somebody sometimes. Everybody's eating some, yeah. sometimes. Somebody sometimes. Uh, Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com for Daniel Vitalis. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm thinking if you, I don't know, you couldn't go anywhere. You were just going to, you and your wife were just going to live off the land. And you just were going to do that. You, chances are you wouldn't have muscle meat like a steak or a ribeye every day, would you? I, I mean, you, without you, refrigeration, well, say without refrigeration, you wouldn't, would you? There was a time where humans were eating much bigger animals. And this is a really important and all part of the human story. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of people, I take for granted sometimes because I've, I've been interviewing all of these, you know, paleo zoologists and stuff for years that everyone understands this. But the last mastodons that we know about died 4,000 years ago. 4, there was the pyramids were there hmm. when there was still mastodons they were on one island um i think between the island is in the bering sea i believe but anyway there was a population of mastodons that hadn't died off yet still there and now there's these new this new way of assaying the the um uh, the fauna of a landscape by actually distilling out the dna from the soil Ooh. so we used to have to find the bones now we can actually sort out dna in soil samples and kind of figure out what's there. It's new science. So we're starting to realize some of these animals were around not that long ago, but just 10,000 years ago, sounds like a lot. But when you look at the human saga being 300,000 years, North America was not just mastodons and all kinds of elephant species. We had mastodons, woolly mammoths, 
Colombian mammoths, several species of giant ground sloths. We had the short-faced bear. It's like two, three times the size Ooh. of like a, a very large bear today. I mean, this continent was covered in megafauna. There was an armadillo the size of like a Volkswagen bug. Incredible what was here. We don't exactly know what happened, but it the predominant theory is that human hunters coming to North America and finding all of these animals that hadn't experienced humans before, that we hunted them out. It's likely more complicated than that, but we definitely were hunting them. Now, at that time, meat was probably pretty plentiful. But yeah. in this ecosystem we're in today, as a hunter, I can eat more meat probably than the average person. I mean, I have four freezers, you know, I've got bear meat and deer meat and all kinds of fish and I've got a bison in there, you know, like I've got a lot of meat around and that's pretty awesome. Now it's very different than the meat in the store. That's something we should talk about at some point yeah, compositionally. We yeah. We're not talking about the same stuff, but um, meat's at a premium on a landscape and always uh, that is in, in recorded history. That's always a story is like getting enough protein. Um, we've, especially away from coastal environments because in the coast you know you've got mussel beds and oyster beds and fishing and that's a pretty productive environment um if you're subsisting off land animals man uh, if it was just me and my wife out there i'd have to be a very very good hunter a better hunter than i am we'll put it that way and what would you uh, do then with the meat if you didn't have freezers say Say no, yeah, like, so you would have what to, would you, do? you would have to, you could can it, but again, that's a very new technology. So right. we've only had, you know, mason jars for how long? And um, so you're talking about a lot of drying and preserving in that way, right? That would be like the Indians the used to do, way. like the Indians, thin strips, hanging yeah. them to air dry or smoking them is another way that was done. Or yeah. in a place like where I live, people take for granted we have outdoor refrigeration for six months, <laughs> uh, in the form of snow and ice, but uh. You know what's a? I love that show uh, alone. I don't know if you've seen that or know about that show. Um, History Channel makes a show that it's kind of like the Olympics of survival. It's the most real of the survival shows. The contestants film themselves, mm -hmm. so they're give, they're trained and given cameras so that they film themselves. They're actually really alone and having to survive on these pretty brutal, usually Arctic landscapes. And there's a great story of a guy who comes in. People don't realize at first his wife is. Um, a Siberian uh, reindeer herder, and he's lived with those folks for a while. So he's got this kind of unfair advantage. He's lived amongst an indigenous group of reindeer herders, and he's out there and he figures out how to kill a moose. Well, he's got this moose and he gets all of this kidney fat off the moose, the, the most highly prized part. So one of the things you realize if you hunt is, and you're going to subsist off that food, it's not the meat that's as important to you as the fat. The fat. Right. That's actually the amount of like, let's say the average American needs, they say, 2,000 calories a day. Well, if you even just work out a little bit, you know, if you've got a, a good exercise program, you're probably getting up to 3,000 calories. If you're like an elite athlete, some cases, you might need 10,000 calories a day. Think about that. That's the food consumption of the average, five average people. Now think about what it was like to eke out a life on the landscape. You're talking about pretty big calorie consumptions because we forget machines are doing most of the work for us today mm -hmm. or migrant laborers are doing a lot of the work for us today. And we're not needing as many calories. Our problem is too many calories. But back in the day, we needed a lot more calories. Proteins got four calories per gram, but fats got nine calories per gram. Fat is a very important energy source. So the problem is hunting 
pre-industrial revolution, you weren't talking about grain-fed fatty animals like we have today. You're talking about much leaner animals. So the fat that they do have is at a premium. So you'll see that historically, a lot of times, like today, people think the most ethical thing would be kill the old buck if you're going to go deer hunting. It's like, well, traditionally, it's like kill the pregnant female. That's actually what humans wanted to do. Why? Because she's got all this fat because she's getting ready to breastfeed wow. for a while. Wow. So like with mastodon hunting, hmm. who's easier to take down? The bull who's going to, this wasn't trophy hunting. You weren't looking at like, hey, how can I get that? I want that huge rack of you know, tusks that he has for the wall. You're dinner. like, we need fat for the village. Let's kill that pregnant female. She's slower and she's filled with fat. Okay, so this guy on this show, he kills a moose. He's got all this fat and it looks like, wow, he's going to be living good. But now he's got to figure out how to keep all the animals out of it. Builds this platform, comes out one night, there's a wolverine in there, steals all the kidney fat. <laughs> Eats it, you know? He ends up finally killing the wolverine, and but not after it's stolen all his fat stores. So you see like, we need protein, but protein's a little easier to come by. Sure. The fat that's on that protein is really, really crucial. It's why for me up here in Maine, like if I want to live off this landscape, a bear is a little bit more important to me than a deer because hmm. a bear is like a pig and it stores all this fat and I can render all that down. I mean, I have made gallons and gallons of rendered bear fat to cook with. It's incredible stuff, but a deer doesn't really have that. So uh, fat and protein are really, really important, but so are plants, man. I mean, again, like as somebody who puts a lot of energy into, into exercise, the idea of exercising off fat calories alone and not having carbohydrates to me seems like, I don't know, it doesn't really make sense to me. I, I think we we need some carbohydrate too. The idea of villainizing carbohydrates is really funny. I mean, again, back to my original point about fads. When I first got into nutrition, I mean, this has been an obsession of mine for most of my life. So it started really when I was a teenager and I was about 16 and everything was fat free then. That was the whole thing. I remember and that movement. Were, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Carbs, 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 man. Pasta. I mean, we would eat pasta, no oil, no salt. We'd just eat pasta all day. <laughs> Breads, pastas. And then it started to be like, oh, no, it's not fat. We need some fats. And now we're into this thing where it's flipped. Oh, no, ketogenic diets, high protein, high fat diets. Carbs are really, really bad for you. It's like, no, 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 no. Back up. We've always eaten carbs. We produce a carbohydrate digesting enzyme in our saliva. That's whole thing. Like you remember, you know that whole thing of chew your food yeah. and liquefy it in your mouth because amylase, the enzyme in your mouth, in your saliva, pre-digests some of those sugars and sets up the digestive process before it even gets into your stomach. So when you say carbs, you're, you're talking vegetables and then rice and well, whatever. Would, like, yeah. let's get more chemi chemistry yeah. here. Yeah. I'm talking anything from glucose, which is a single sugar molecule, to more complex sugars. Like, so you got fructose and glucose. That's like a single sugar molecule. Mm -hmm. Then you get to sucrose. That's what table sugar is made of. That's two sugar molecules linked together. So you get like a double bang. So there's a lot more. That's why it's so sweet. Because you actually, when you get into your mouth, it becomes two sugars. Then you get into more complex carbohydrates. So what we would think of from starches, let's say. And then we can get into even really more complex carbohydrates that aren't, we don't even think about as food, like more like what's in the medicinal mushrooms. 
I mean, what makes medicinal mushrooms good for your immune system are beta-glucans, which are super complex carbohydrates. So in many different forms and found in many different foods, humans have always been consuming carbohydrate. This is a really, really essential thing. You know, here, I, it would be hard for you to convince me that the maple syrup I make from my trees out here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I go out and I tap these trees and I reduce down their sap and it produces maple syrup, which is the same sugar as white sugar. It is sucrose. sucrose. It's the same sugar. It's, you know, interestingly, like during the um, the days of slavery here in North America, in New England, we had a movement to produce maple sugar and make rum from it because all of the rum was coming from those plantations that were being, you know, tended by slaves. And so there was a rejection up here of like, hey, we don't really want to be part of the slave trade. We can make our own rum from maple because it's the same sugar. But people look at white sugar and they go, man, that's really bad for you. And then you look at maple syrup and it's like, oh, well, that's a whole food from a tree. Like how, that's Same a tough thing. sell for me. Same thing. Yeah, more nutrient rich. But I mean, like I was just in Hawaii drinking um, sugar cane juice. Yeah, they do it right on the street, don't they? Don't they? Really nice, yeah. man, really nice. You know, like probably not something I should eat at every meal, but hard pressed to believe that I should never touch anything like that. I just don't think that that's true. So we've always eaten carbohydrates. We've always eaten fat. We've always eaten protein. And anybody who comes and tells you, and it's like a Venn diagram. You need it. You want to be at the overlap point of all three of those. Mm -hmm. And and maybe one person less carbs, more fat, maybe the next person more. Car My wife is a lifelong athlete, hardcore athlete her whole life. She loves carbs. She just loves carbs. She loves to make fun of this gluten and like anti-gluten movement. She's like, I love gluten. <laughs> and she she can live off of like wheat. She can eat bread, pasta, oats every day. Like stuff that for me is like, I don't do super well on those foods. Mm -hmm. But she actually really does. And and I can see it in not only her health, but in her athletic performance. Uh, so for somebody to be like, oh, you should just never do that. It's like, okay, but explain this person who's doing great on that. Um, I just think it's unfair. So what, what happens is, we tend to macronutrient by macronutrient, we, we constantly say one is the new bad guy. And we're avoiding looking at these huge, obvious things that are causing health problems. The 70,000 plus chemicals in our environment that we've synthesized and released. Um, the lack of exercise and movement that we have. The chemicals in our water. The nutrient deficiencies. Like there's all these things causing ill health and we keep trying to blame foods that um, I I think it's a case of mistaken identity a lot of the times. Yeah. I'm not saying you should eat only carbs. I'm not saying you should sure. eat only fat or you should eat only protein. In fact, I'm the opposite. I'm saying you should eat all of those things in the balanced proportion that's right for you. But there's all these people out there saying that one of those things is the bad thing. And that's the cause of all the diseases. That's the other thing. And for, if the carnivore people would just put it in different terms, like famously, Jordan Peterson is on the carnivore yeah, diet. I, 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 and his see, daughter, right? I like him. Yeah, now they have cool. an yeah. they have an extreme. They're both quite lean characters. Uh -huh. uh, I'd say Jordan looks quite lean to me. I haven't seen him without a shirt on, but he he looks like a pretty lean dude. Um, I think that diet can it can be hard to hold some body mass sometimes. But he's on that diet because of an autoimmune problem that is in his family. 
not because he says this is the healthiest diet. He's got an autoimmune problem. So if somebody's like, hey, this diet for autoimmunity is great, I'm like, oh, I'm on board. But when they start getting into the territory of all the diseases in the world come from the fact that people have forgotten you're only supposed to eat animals, because that's always the story. That You remember back in the day with the raw foodists, the story was humans were doing so great and then we forgot we're not supposed to cook food and then that's the cause of all the diseases. People always want to take their thing and then make it the that's the reason all the problems of Pandora's box, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. That's a major oversimplification. There's lots of cultures that didn't have those problems that ate those foods. We need to look in other places. And I think one of the biggest ones, people just need to look at exercise. There's just such a lack of it. I mean, one thing that used to frustrate me, Patrick, back in the day, we go to those health conferences, so-called, and (laughs) I would I would be out on the street and I'd see people come out of a gym or even like a GNC that looked so much healthier than a thousand people at these health conferences that had been on these diets. Hmm. Everybody was like looking skinny and dried out and worn out and tired. And they were all talking about how healthy they felt and were. And then I'd see just a person eating a regular standard American diet at the gym and they would look infinitely healthier, more robust, more muscular, glowing skin, shining. You can actually, I personally, and this is like an unpopular view in the diet world, in the diet wars, but I think you'd be better off on a standard, uh, on a relatively balanced standard American diet with a ton of exercise than you are on the perfect diet with no exercise. Because I don't think you can eat your way to super good health, I, but you have to have these other components. And the faster your metabolism from the amount of exercise you have, the more you can burn, you can get away with more. Hmm. by having a ripping furnace you can burn a lot of bad stuff in a really hot furnace you know but if your furnace is so one of the things is is let's say somebody thinks that they're going to eat their way to perfect health so they're not thinking about the exercise component or when they exercise it's very low intensity a little bit of yoga it's a little bit of walking but they're never really (laughs) getting that heart rate up okay and they're never really pushing themselves in gravity with strength training they just do a little bit of movement they're probably going to be more susceptible to any deviation in their diet because they don't have a furnace hot enough to deal with it. Oh. Versus if they trained really in a, in a more extensive way, now maybe they have a little piece of bread and they don't even notice it now. Hmm. Whereas before it knocks them flat because they, their furnace is burning so cold. I mean, I'm, I'm being metaphorical. No, I, what's know, that, and what's furnace that furnace doing, exa- doing exactly? The furnace is... Eating up your any, metabolic furnace. Your metabolic yeah, like furnace. if your calorie need is really high, your body's going to tear apart a crouton just like it's going to tear apart, <laughs> you know, a piece of steak. It's like yeah. it just needs the fuel. Yeah. Right. So think if you've got like a building and that furnace, you got to heat this massive building like a hospital or a school or something. You need this huge furnace, like, and you can just throw anything in there because you're burning such a hot fire and it just takes fuel. But if you've got like a weak little, like, picture if you have like a You've barely got a little, like you get a little match going and you try to put a log on it. What happens if you try to put a, a log on a match? That thing's going out. But if you got a rip and fire and you start throwing, all, you could throw twigs, logs, leaves, newspapers, it all just burns up. Now, I'm not saying that that's the approach you want. You want a good diet and good exercise, but if you don't have good exercise and this is something that uh, I've figured out as I've gotten older. Because, you know, I'm, I'm mid-40s now. So, like, when we first met, I was just coming out of my 20s. I mean... I remember, yeah. I didn't know. I could do anything then. I, I could eat. I could. I, I didn't have to exercise. 
much. I could stay like looking fit and all that. It was great. Okay, now, no way. I got to train a lot more. And 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 I've come. I've realized now that the vo- the volume I think that we need of exercise is considerably higher and more intense than I previously thought. I think you're right. I'll just there. say that. Yeah, I've yeah. been doing resistance training for you know six six months or so. I'm doing that X three. Have you heard about that X three? Uh, I don't. Think it's so. um these elastic bands. And, yeah. and and uh, not elastic, but latex bands. And they yep. have this silver uh, yep. bar. I can show you a picture. And it's pretty cool stuff. And we promote it. And I have more muscle today than I uh, ever have. Uh, here's, yeah, that's crucial. Here's the guy that... that oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Jaquish. And it, you, so you do these bands and it, there's a, it's variable resistance, Daniel. So you're never taking the pressure off of the muscle, Right. You're, so so you're say sure? you, no weight no cardio i'm like uh, you know some cardio bro oh but no anyway. no 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 yeah, the, the bands are great like i think the bands um i've got a whole gym in my basement here and it's, it's um, that same i've got a lot of bands but, what's that yeah i think that the bands are one of the greatest like breakthroughs in the exercise technology uh-huh. what you can do with them i mean i love weights i love i love all kinds of exercise and i do like a really broad range of things but i do a lot with bands and particularly the bands are useful for rehabbing injuries too in ways that you just can't with other weights you can do things with bands that you just could not do before and so they're like this amazing breakthrough and the thing is is they're so cheap and as a guy who's got to live a good part of my year in hotel rooms and on the road airbnbs and stuff you can take those with my show yeah yeah, they weigh nothing. And I, mean, I can't bring barbells with me on, on a plane, but I can bring bands of multiple sizes with me and a jump rope. And it's like, man, I'm good to go, you know? So, you know, another thing that I've been doing, I don't know how I got turned on to it, is just going on my chin up bar and just hanging, just hanging for a minute yeah. or two minutes as long as I can. And that seems to be really strengthening too. I don't know what's oh, going on. I don't know what's going on with that, but that's yeah, pretty fun. Well, I would say a couple things about yeah. it. Um, one of the things I want to say about it is humans have a backstory in the trees, you know, <laughs> That's right. not humans in our current form, but our predecessor species. Yeah. And there's, it's called uh, arboreal locomotion when you swing through trees. So to locomote, like to walk or to, to move yourself through the environment, arboreal like trees. So arboreal locomotion, our shoulder is really built, you know, the fact that we can throw a ball, actually here, even better, the fact that we can shoot a bow or throw a spear which is how we kind of got to be these great hunters we are, is an outgrowth of the fact that we had a shoulder built for moving through trees. So Mm. when you watch like an ape move through the trees and you see them swing from branch to branch, and the reason we call them monkey bars for kids, that's our shoulders built for moving through trees, but now adapted to our land life. And that allowed us to then transition to be able to throw things, which is why a pitcher can throw a baseball at 100 miles an hour. Um, That joint needs to be uh, distended in that way with gravity by hanging like that but the other thing is yeah one of the other things is that you're um one of the best predictors of mortality and also one of the signs of biological aging is a weakening of the grip and so grip strength is how mine is like crazy now i mean it's like iron by hanging like that i'm feeling it now yeah so the grip is a, a one minute hang is one of the best ways to maintain your grip strength, you know, and obviously a lot of people need to build up to that yeah. and that the more body mass you have, the harder that is. But, but just, you know, hanging uh, alone, but having a bar, man, it's like one of the first things I did, you know, it's like, I got to get a bar get in a this bar. house. Like having a bar that you can pull up on is crucial and maintaining that upper body strength is so important. Yeah. On, on the, 
um, exercise, do you think it's possible to get enough of the, the cardio, your heart rate up with just doing resistance training? I do a rebounder for about 45 seconds as fast as I can, fast as I yeah. can every morning. I, I can get my heart rate up to 180 and my resting is 60. I mean, that's three, three times. That's, good. that's a good resting heart rate for you too. Yeah. Um, um, do, you, do you think, so, or do you, do you, do, what are you no, in your opinion, think, do you think uh, I would need to do I, I more heart so. stuff? I'm good. Yeah, so I'm big into heart rate training. I, I really love to, I run a heart rate monitor and I train currently, I'm, I average four hours a week of low intensity heart, uh, low intensity cardio. So I'm doing what's called often called zone two training. If you haven't heard of that, Patrick, no, you I might don't. want to look into that a little bit. It's cool stuff. Um, there's a guy called Mathetone who's really, um, push this idea. But so zone two is like, I'm moving at a pace where I could talk to you, but I don't want to, or I could still breathe through my nose, but I'm right on the edge of where I want to start mouth breathing. And I'll do that. So for me, like last week, I swam that way. I jump roped that way. Hmm. I ran that way. I rode that way. And I biked that way. So I, I do a lot of different things because wow. I, I got to stay and zone interested two, in it. Uh, what percentage is that over your resting about? Okay. So that would be about a second. I can probably pull that up for you. So zone two, it depends who you talk to, but the, the general way that they'll do that actually is 220 minus your, is minus your age. Uh, no, 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 it's two, no, 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 it's not that it's 180 minus your age is your, is your zone two. So let me, let me explain why okay. this is important is because you have two energy systems for cardio and you have an aerobic and an anaerobic. So aerobic is like an oxygen metabolism using oxygen aerobic. Mm -hmm. And then anaerobic is without oxygen. Cause you're, you're moving so fast that your body has to metabolize differently. So when you get on that um, rebounder and you go super fast, you're doing anaerobic work. It's sprinting, basically. You're sprinting. Yeah, because so I'm not breathing, right? I'm, 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 I'm holding in carbon dioxide, right? You're, you're, produce, you're metabolizing so fast to produce that energy. Yeah. Now, this is important. You want to do that. That's sprinting. So you could sprint on land by running. You could sprint in a pool. You could sprint on a bike. You could sprint on a rower. You could sprint mm -hmm. on a jump rope some way that you get your heart rate high and actually what's great is if you can get as really get up and touch your maximum heart rate i mean you want to do that a few times a week at least you know i do that at crossfit so i go to a crossfit gym a few days a week and they get us to we call it the pain cave what, where what, you know your hands max? on your knees what's your max 182 oh. is mine that's the highest i've been able to get it this year really so yeah. So um, you want to get up into that zone, but then you have what's called your aerobic threshold. That's the point where your body switches over. For me, that's about 136 beats a minute. Mm -hmm. So I want to stay under that for long durations. So that's where you want all those hours of accumulation. So I do, uh, like I said, about f some weeks I'll be three hours, some weeks I'll be five hours, but I want like four hours a week for me uh, at below that 134 that's a pretty comfortable place i get on a bike i can listen to a podcast or or watch a documentary or something like that and i can just hang out there for an hour i actually really look forward to that private time you know to just do that mm -hmm. that's 
I can't go into that sprint for an hour. No way. I just want to get up there, touch that high heart rate, come down a couple times a week. And I think we need both because you want both energy systems really functional later in life. Right? It's like really important down the road because, you know, at age 90, you want to go up the stairs and you want to be able to still drive. And, st you know, there's all these like things that you don't want to like give up the ability to do. And they're going to require a heart that has been through all of that. So, yeah, I think that's really, really crucial personally. And, and I just think that's missing in the health food movement. So, unfortunately, you've got this, the diet side and the exercise side are often really divorced worlds. If you go down the diet road, you don't hear as, you know, exercise gets lip service, but it's not a big part. Yeah. And then when you get into the to the exercise and athletics side, diet is like it's it's a it's a weak interpretation. I'd mm -hmm. say we know a lot more on this other side, you know. And it's like it always feels like man, they're just making this too simple. There's a lot more to it. They don't differentiate often between the quality of food. They just think about macronutrients often. So it's both things. But I do want to say with exercise, I think we should break it into a couple things. There's cardio, and that's really crucial. And there's the strength training piece, whether you do it with weights or bands or however you increase gravity on your muscles, there's the mobility piece. That's super crucial too, is making sure that you can move through the entire range of motion. I've seen you go on the floor and, and roll around like a nut and do yeah, all these fun things. Yeah, try to maintain things. that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And movement programming too. Like for instance, like imagine, so one thing I'll do on my mats is um, I'll work on different ways that I can get up off the floor without using my hands. Yes, sir. Which is not hard to do right now, but I know it's going to be hard in 40 years. So rather than in 40 years trying to figure out how to do it, just keep teaching it. my body the yeah. simplest, most efficient way so that the movement program is already running so that I can just do that and try not to lose it rather than try to build it in down the road. So I think all that mobility and movement piece is really important too. And, and then I think when you combine that with diet and, of course, sleep and good rest, which is also crucial – and then you combine that with like good emotional, mental health, relationships, community. Now you're starting to get a more holistic picture of what it takes to, I don't know, I, you, I love how, what do you call it? It takes a while, to, it takes a long time it, to it get young. It takes a long time to get young, yeah. Yeah. And I think of all these things when I'm doing these things, I just think I'm like dropping another token in the piggy bank. Yeah. I'm just accumulating. It's like when I first started to do, because I was somebody who like hated cardio. It was my wife actually. It was like, you just start doing cardio. And I was like, really resistant. Oh <laughs> um, I've grown to love it. I'm doing my first marathon this year. I'm really excited about it. Oh, but, really? A uh, 26? Um, I'm really going to do a 26 mile? That, 26 yeah, mile? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah 26.2. Uh, very excited about that. But um, I didn't like cardio at all. I mean, I, I just was utterly resistant to it. And um, over time, man, I've when I first told, like, I, I first started doing, you know, 20 minutes and then I eventually realized like, man, that's, that's like the weakest prescription, you know? And so now I do hour long sessions as my typical. But when I first tell people that, like, oh yeah, I'm going to do an hour of that. And people are like, oh my God, that seems insane to a lot of people because they're we're so resistant to it. But once you give way to it, man, uh, the quality of life improvement is dramatic. Yeah. I, you don't ever get like out of breath anymore you don't get challenged by things anymore for me i'm finally at a point where swimming is like pleasurable mm. i would get in the pool and my little stocky little body would just sink to the bottom and and to stay at the surface like was hard you know now it's not hard it's like life has gotten way easier so i kind of i do really appreciate like 
a lot of people are thinking about how they look. And so strength training is really appealing because you can change how you look even if you're not in shape, right? You can look really good, but you get a lot of people out of the gym and you, you start, you know, making them run down the street and you realize real quick that you can look awesome and not be in shape. And so the, the rewards for cardio are invisible and down the road largely, Hmm. you know? And so you've got to really be committed to like putting those tokens in the bank. Remember the, the day when we used to talk about the Lance Armstrong and the cyclist and carving up, you know, eating pasta and stuff like that. And I really appreciate what you said about carbs because after six months or so, and I started to do this, you know, this resistance training with the bands, no way I could do it without carbs. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? I just felt like I was missing something, you know? So yeah. now my yeah. favorite food is organic brown rice pasta from Italy, a friend of mine makes. Yeah. And it's just a noodle with some eggs. And I can eat that anytime yeah. now. And it's like, yeah. it's like honey, it's like nectar from God. Isn't that crazy? I'm glad you're saying this. You know, yeah. I think an important way for people to think about carbs would be thinking about it kind of like um, maybe like the fuel in your car. It's like, well, how much fuel do you need? It's like, well, how far are you going? right? Because you don't try to put more fuel into your car than it can hold. It's like the amount of carbs you should eat are based on how much exercise you're doing, doing, how much you're you're moving. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's days where I need way more and days where I need way less. So I think that's the real knob that you want to turn. Yeah. So if you've got like a a rest day where you're not going to do much, you don't need to carb load up or anything like that. It doesn't make any sense. But, um, I do think like we want pretty consistent protein intake. Oh, yeah. And I think with fats, I think we just need to be thoughtful because they are so calorie dense, not because they're bad for you. They're fantastic for you. And a, most of your, a, a significant part of your non aqueous body tissue is made of fat, right? Like all your cell membranes, all your hormones, like you need all that fat, but it's really, really high in calories. So it's easy to overshoot when you get what I notice is people get excited about fats, you know, like they get into one of these like, kind of more fat dominant diets and they're eating way more calories because there's more than twice as many calories per gram in fat than carbohydrate. Twice That's as many significant ca- calories. Yeah. yeah. So if you take a pure gram of carbohydrate, a pure gram of fat, oh, let's say also a pure gram of alcohol and a pure gram of protein, mm-hmm. line them all up. So a, a gram of carbohydrate got four calories, a gram of protein, four calories, a gram of ethanol alcohol, seven calories, which is why you can get fat <clears throat> drinking, seven calories per gram. Fat, nine calories per gram, nine. So if there's four in carbohydrate, you got double plus one more calories in fat, which just means that you have to be proportional. So here's another interesting thing. Um, I got to, my I, I was making an episode of my show. And so with the show, we often have, at Wildfab, we often have um, chefs on. Mm-hmm. So I'll go out with somebody and we'll forage and we'll hunt. And then we go to a chef and they produce like a meal and we all get together and eat that. That's like the premise of the show. So I've got this chef, Tony Seacrest from um, Savannah, Georgia. He owns a restaurant called The Wild there. Awesome, like dockside restaurant. Amazing, amazing chef. And so he's up visiting us and uh, we're going snowshoe hare hunting. And one of the nights we're staying in a hotel, but we've got like a suite for all, every the whole crew and it's got a, a kitchen. So he's cooking for us and we go out and get some steaks. Well, I've been living off venison and buffalo. I Even when I eat bear, which has a lot of fat, the fat's not in the meat. The fat and the meat are separate. So when I eat the meat of a bear, it's also lean. So I'm used to very lean meat. 
well, we get like beef steaks and I haven't had one in a while because I eat a lot of red meat at home. If I'm at a restaurant, I almost never going to order steaks because I, I eat so much venison. It's like my first cow steak in a while. I couldn't believe how good it was because it was so much fat in it that it was like the feeling in your mouth. It's like, no wonder people get hooked on these grain fed cows. I mean, it's like a the mouth feels incredible, but the amount of calories in that, you know, it's probably four times what I'm used to eating when I sit down to a portion of meat. And so a lot of times people are like, well, meat's really bad for you. And they'll point to people's weight gain. And it's like, that's not the problem of the meat. That's the problem of the fat. And it's not that the fat's bad for you. It's just too much fuel. So people are overnourished a lot of times. That's the issue. They've got too, they're just too many calories. So reducing that down is smart, but um, you want to eat nutrient dense food because if you're reducing your calories, yeah. you know, you don't want to be reducing your nutrients. I was so mentioning 